Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. God is good, is he not? Take your Bibles and turn to Judges as we continue on. Victory and defeat. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we have definitely had a theme this morning as we talked about overcoming. We talked about having fear, even in the valley of the shadow of death. There's victory in Jesus, so on and so forth. To whom shall I fear? We're talking about that as we're looking at Judges and Gideon. One of the things that all of us love is stories about small numbers or a group of people who, who, um, who face an unsurmountable enemy and wind up coming victorious. One of the greatest poems of all time is The Charge of the Light Brigade. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, it used to be one that you actually had to memorize in, uh, in school. There's been several movies on it. One of the lines is, Forward the Light Brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered, theirs is not to make a reply, theirs is not to reason why, that might be a a phrase you, you remember, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600, cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Remember that from literature class? No one? At least remember little rascals and Alfalfa's doing it and he's doing it and he's got uh, soap coming out of his mouth. I don't remember those things, but you need to go either watch the movies or, or, or read the poem. It's a great poem by Alfred uh, Lord Tennyson and it's about uh, the British during the Crimean War in the late 1800s and a miscommunication where the light brigade of 600 men were to go and take some, uh, guard some guns and take some guns during the Russians and the Turks but there was a miscommunication, and instead of uh, doing a, a light thing, they wound up being attacked, and the majority of them uh, died. Most of us <clears throat> know the story of Biddle, uh, Little Bighorn, the Battle of Little Bighorn, or is known as Custard's Last Stand. Custer going into a battle against a large army. It was the most significant act, uh, action of the Great Sioux War of 1876, but also one of the greatest defeats of the U.S. forces. The fight was an overwhelming victory for the Indian tribes, while the 7th Cavalry, a force of 700 men, suffered a major defeat. Five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated. Custard was killed, as were two of his brothers, a nephew, and a brother-in-law. The total U.S. casualty included 268 dead and 55 severely wounded, which six later died of their wounds. So you have 600 going to their death. You have 700. And then there's another famous battle that's depicted in movies and comics. That is 300. Some of you might be more familiar with that. And that's there. It's a fictionalized retelling of a battle between the Persians and the Greeks, the Spartans. If you might remember, they had 300 men and they were to block uh, an entrance into a little, little 
Cannon Valley, so to speak, and to stop the Persian alley, uh, army from getting in there. As you know, again, they were betrayed, and eventually those 300 men also died. Today, we're going to read of another small group of warriors called upon to accomplish the impossible task of ridding the 12 tribes from the marauding armies of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other nations that were east of the Jordan River. Last week, we were introduced to Gideon, this man who would leave this ragtag group, so to speak. He struggled with self-esteem issues, as you might recall. He did not think highly of himself. He was the weakest of the least, he said. Nor did he see himself as any type of leader or warrior. Reluctantly, we found that he heeded the call and eventually in the commission of the Lord to deliver the Hebrew tribes from their enemies, though it took some convincing with various miracles to prod him into action. In today's passage, we're going to read of Gideon's great victory over the Mennonites, but also a tale of a downward spiral as he ends his life in what many of us would call a defeat or a loss or a tarnish on his legacy. So with that, we're just going to read Judges chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read that first verse here silently together. Uh, have, it's on the monitor if you need it, but also take your Bibles. It says, then Jerubbabel, remember that that's what he was called uh, after he had torn down the, tower, or the, the, the idol bap, uh, of Babel in his, in his father's yard. That is, Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the, king, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Father, give us wisdom as we open up to this, this familiar tale, but let us see some things anew. And let us also then pray that your spirit would come in and direct our minds and hearts to not only understand this portion of scripture and to interpret it correctly and what it means for us, but then also to apply it. Lord, let us not leave uh, the same Let us do the hard work of sanctifying ourselves through the truth that's found, yes, even here in Judges 7 and 8. We thank you for this word. We thank you for Gideon, a man of faith. Lord, may we take the warnings at at, at your level and understanding them. In your name we pray. Amen. In chapter 7, we see that Gideon has gained his confidence and courage, and he's called the other tribes to join him in battle. His call for men was very successful as 32,000 men gather to fight for their families, their land, and prosperity. Now, as we continue on here, we see in Judges as we go on, is that the people have assembled for war. There's 32,000 men ready to fight. As we go into verse 2 and 30, verse 2 and 3, though, we see that God gives an out to those who fear. He says, you, those who fear, and this comes from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, one of the laws was if someone had just gotten married, they were exempt from military service. If they had farms to field, to field they, they, they could then go. And it also gave out to those that would fear. It says, if there's any man who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. The Lord knew that if you had someone who was suffering in battle, was someone that was not brave, was not one who, who could stand up to the heat of battle, that person could cause others to be fearful. We can see that time and time again. So God says, you know what? You got 32,000 men. That's great. But now go ahead and follow the law. Ask if there's anyone who's too fearful. The God knows what's in man's heart. So Gideon does so as you read that chapter. And he says, all right, any of you fearful, you can go home. 10,000 
or, or 22,000 men stand up, grab their equipment, and leave the field. Leaving Gideon with 10,000. Now, could you imagine the impact that had not only on Gideon as a leader, but also the men as they're standing up? Were, were you, 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 not you too, as men start to leave. You can imagine all of a sudden their excitement of seeing everyone there starts to kind of deflate a little bit. But what we see that God looks at and God designs a little test. He says, that is still too many. And Gideon say, what, 10,000 men is too many? Now, remember, Scripture has already described the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other armies as locusts that cover the land, as countless, not being able to number. And I got 10,000. I got something that verse numbered. <laughs> what are you saying here? But God says, no, nah, that's too much. Look at with me at verse 4. And let's see this thing. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of, who, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Just another test of obedience here. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who, uh, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people dealt, knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites in your hands and let all the others go Every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. But he retained the 300 men, and the camp of, and the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. Look here in the monitor, you can kind of see the test there. There's those who are getting all downs and they're lapping. Then there's those who are going with their mouth and putting up. Now, as we have to realize this, we have made many stories, VBS, children's stories of why this is. God actually gives us no strategy or the wisdom of why he's choosing those who, who lap with their, their the, the, with, whether with their, uh, like a dog or one who's bringing it. There, there really is no interest in that or explanation other than it's a test that God uses. So to try to make any other explanation is really difficult to do. We just don't know. But God uses that to whittle them down to 300 men. Now, who wants to go to battle? We just saw the story of the 600 men who wind up being killed. We see the story of, of, um, of Little Bighorn, 700 men. Now, of course, this was well be after uh, Gideon, so he doesn't have that to, to rail on. But he's thinking 300 men I had 32,000, now I have 300. And I have to go against an enemy that has oppressed us for seven years. Oh, by the way, Lord, did you forget that, that they're countless? There's an they're like locusts? How will we do this? Gideon, as you can imagine, suffering from fear and a lack of confidence. Read with me in verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise and go down against the camp, for I have given them into your hand. That's important. Whenever you see that, you should underline that and mark it in your Bible. I have given them into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, he understands Gideon is still now once again. He's kind of shaking in his boots. His knees are knocking. But he says, but if you go down, go down to the camp with pure, your servant. Can I just make a side note? 
I think that's the beauty and the power of the church community is that we're not to go it alone. God gives us other men and women to walk along with us when we're afraid, when we're in, uh, uh, not confident, when our courage is lacking. Go back to verse 11. And the Lord says, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, he says, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. I, I grant you this will encourage you. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. We can see, yeah, Gideon is, is struggling with his courage again. Verse 12, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts, again, in abundance. And their camels were without numbers as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now, obviously, God could count them, but he's given us a hyperbole, a word picture to say that this is a large group of people. When Gideon came to the camp in verse 13, behold, he saw a man, or a man was telling a dream to his comrades. He sneaks close enough to the camp, and two men, or many nights, are speaking. And one said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of the Midianites, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned upside down, speaking of the tent. So that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. That is not the Lord speaking there. That is not Gideon or some prophet of God. That is the enemy of Israel and of God. This is a pagan idol worshiper who has a dream. Now, dreams don't make sense. You read, how, in the world, how does a barley cake roll down a hill and flatten a tent? Well, we're not saying the tent that it makes sense. But his interpretation is that God has given us over. We're up for a beating. Now, you can imagine hearing that from the mouth of his enemy, that Gideon was strengthened and encouraged. And as we go on verse 15, we read, as soon as Gideon heard the telling and the dream and the interpretation, what did he do? Someone want to shout that out for me? What did he do? He worshiped. Why did he worship? Because God has encouraged him by a word. Now, you have to remember many times Jesus or God, excuse me, spoke in dreams as Jesus did. Jesus is God. He spoke in dreams, he spoke in visions to actually believers and non-believers. So this was not uncommon in those days. So he takes it from a word of God and it leads him to worship. And he returned to the camp and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. He goes into the tent of those 300 men that are probably overlooking, because it says that Midian was below them. So Gideon and his land, uh, people are on a high ground. They're looking out. They see all the tents. They see all the lights. They hear all the, the baying of the camels. And they say, tomorrow we have to go fight this group with 300 men. We had 30, 32,000. Then we had 10,000. Now we got 300. And maybe they're looking at each other and wondering, where are you going to go? Are you ready to head out? Hey, oh, I just forgot. I, I'm getting married tomorrow. I, I got to run. Maybe didn't look to make excuses, but it seems like God has fortified these men. Gideon comes in and says, men, we're ready. 
Not only have I encouraged, but then he says, I now have the battle plan. And let's read. He says, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian in your hand. Again, we see that once again. Not only has it been said once, it's been said by a non-believer, and now it's been said once again. In verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Think of like a, a jar would be at that time like a, like a jug, like a clay jug. So it, would be, it wouldn't be something you would see through it. But he says, now put a torch in there as well, which makes no sense. Because if you're holding that up and it's lit, you're not going to see anything. But he said in verse 17, <coughs> look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and I who are with me, then blow the trumpets on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That's an important phrase for the Lord and for Gideon. What a strange remark here. What a strange battle plan, Gary. I, I don't think that would be up in there. I mean, there's nothing here about when to grab your swords. There's nothing about catapults. There's nothing about building some type of uh, a, a trench or something and try to drag them in there. There's no hiding behind bushes. It's no grab a torch and a jar and grab a trumpet. Now I'm thinking, okay, I got a trumpet in one hand. I got a jar and a torch in the other hand. How do I hold my sword or my spear? Seems kind of odd. That's a strange way to go in battle. But however, God has some plans here. Look at verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with them came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. It's about 10 p.m. And they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they cried out in their left hands uh, or they held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for Gideon and for, or for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Now he's not speaking here of Gideon's men. Of crying out and fleeing. He's speaking of the Midianites. As soon as that, that trumpet begins, and, and as soon as that, that jar is broken and the light shines forth, it's not Gideon's men who stands and runs. It's the Midianites who all of a sudden hear the noise, look to the hills, see lights all around them, stand up, and begin to flee. Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord said, every man's sword against his comrade and against all of his army. What happened there is the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the men of the east all began to fight each other. Gideon and his men at this time, they did not need their sword, their spear, or their shield. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Abel uh, Maloah. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and former uh, Asher and from all of Manasseh. And they pursued after Midian. 
Pastor John MacArthur writes that trumpets and torches at first concealed within clay pitchers were suddenly displayed at a most startling moment at 10 o'clock at night when things are settling down. There's not going to be a battle. They didn't fight during the day. They didn't have the goggles that we have now, the x-ray or the, the things in which they could see. This impression caused by blaring noise, the always terrible shouts of Israel and the sudden lights surrounding the sleeping hosts and shattering the stillness conveyed one idea, that each light could mean a legion behind it. So they believed an incredible host had moved in to catch the awakening army in its detriment. They did not realize that there were only 300 men out there with trumpets and and, and lights and torches. Gideon and his men gained a great victory that day. But let us not dwell so much on their bravery, but on the fact that it was the Lord who put the enemy in disarray, causing them to attack one another. Once again, Israel won a victory, not because of their skill, but because of God's. They won the victory because of their faith in obeying Christ. Once again, we learn that God works his sovereign will through the providence while also ordaining human responsibility to accomplish his purpose. When the writer of Judges records their cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, we see the power of God in harmony with the obedience of man. Such shouts reminded the enemies that the threat of the sword of Gideon and God was for real. The impression was one of doom and terror. These men fought and killed themselves. Gideon did not have to raise his hand in this battle. Miles Van Pelt writes of this big picture for us to understand, as you see on the monitor, is that when God saves, he is careful to make clear that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. When we are weak, he is strong. When we come to know in the core of our being that God alone is our refuge and strength, our fear is turned into worship and the idols in our life can finally be dislodged from our hearts. So what can you and I gather? It's not about you and I grabbing trumpets and torches and clay jars. It's about recognizing that the battle belongs to us, or belongs to God. You and I have nothing to fear, and Gideon had to learn that. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8, if you would, please. And while you're searching for that passage, let me remind you that Scripture informs us that we are not to be afraid, it says in the Chronicles, and do not be dismayed at the great horde that might be among us, for the battle is not yours, but God's. In Psalms, one song that we sing here, who is this king of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Again, in Proverbs, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So what I'm saying here is you are fighting battles today. And it may be seen as, as numerous as locusts or as the sand in the sea. You have some big things that you are struggling with. And maybe you are, 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 are lacking in courage. Maybe you're struggling with fear. Maybe you're, you're struggling with obeying God and trusting Him. But let me tell you, the Bible tells us that we can trust in His good promises. We can trust in the Word of God and in the person of God. Are you there in Romans? Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 8. Look at verse 31. 
What shall we say to these things? He's speaking about things that can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not, do, not also with him graciously give all things? What shall we, shall, what, what, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's children? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Then look at this, verse 35. If it's not online in your Bible, do so now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As are written for your sake, for we are for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life is difficult. The world is hostile against us. They are, they are dare set against it to hurt us. But it says, no, in all these things, whether it's a scheme of Satan, whether it's our own battle of sin, whether it's our own desires that battle against us, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, in verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. I know you know this passage of Scripture. There was once a song, I, I can't remember, there once was a song that we used to sing when we were kids on this song. I wish we could find it. It'd make a great song. Here's what I want you to get from Gideon. Great story. It would make a great movie. You and I have nothing to fear in this life if God is on our side. Time and time again, God reassures Gideon and grants him the confidence, the courage, and the companionship to face his enemies and roundly defeat them. Maybe what you and I need today is a burst of confidence, a giving of courage, an understanding of companionship that God has given us, that we're not to walk this road alone. Some of you are facing some difficult times. Some of you, you've, you've experienced it and you've seen God answer prayer time and time again. We need you to step alongside others to help supply what might be lacking in their faith, to help us to build up our courage, to build up our confidence, to, to concrete those companionships so that we may walk in faithful obedience to our Lord. Now, as we read chapters 7 and 8, we see that Gideon fought the Midianites twice. The first time he did it following God's instructions in chapter 7. The second time, though, as we move to chapter 8, we're going to see he's going to fight the Midianites on his own initiative. And this is where we read about his downward spiral. So we're going to go through chapter 8 very quickly. In chapter 8, if you have it there in verses 1 through 21, we're not going to read it. Again, I want to encourage you, I try to put that on Facebook and others so you can read it before you come. But all of a sudden, there's eternal conflict, a great, a great victory. But as soon as there's a victory, internal conflict starts to run among the tribes. As Ephraim says, wait a second, why didn't you call us? We're one of the biggest tribes. Why didn't you call us to the battle? 
They were upset, so Gideon had to take some time and placate them and join them in the battle. But then even this, even though his men were exhausted, Gideon continued pursuing the enemy. And the point, the reason why he did after defeating the Lord, defeating them, he pursued them not because God instructed him to do so, but he did so, as we're going to see, because of personal revenge. Again, his men are exhausted. They've been going for several, uh, for, for a long period of time. And unfortunately, he has trouble finding food for his men. Since the other cities were still wary of helping the Midianites, not only because they didn't have much food themselves, but because the Midianites were not fully defeated. They were leaving, but they might come back again. So they were reluctant to help Gideon. Enraged, he threatened to exact revenge on them when he returned after defeating the Midianites. And exact revenge, he did. Torturing and killing two cities. Killing the men. And then we see that the reason, finally, we find out the reason why he continued to chase after Midian, the Midianites is because he, re he realized that the Midianites had killed his brothers. And so he wanted blood revenge. So we see a downward spiral. He obeyed God, but then he went beyond what God said. And I'm going to tell you that's many times when you and I are trying to walk faithfully. We're trying to obey God. We're reading his words. We're trying to live. But then all of a sudden, you and I get above our skis. You know that, 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 that idiom, that picture? We, we get past where we're going. We've gone too far. Kind of as a child is, gets a little bit of freedom at the park or something. And mom and dad says, no, don't go any further. Don't stop. You're getting too close to the creek. You're getting too, well, that's a creek. That's a little water thing that runs through. Uh, you're getting too close. Don't do that. And then what they do, they don't listen. And what happens? They fall in. They get in trouble. What not? You and I do that all the time. Churches do that. Pastors do that. We get too far. We're thinking, all right, let's go. Let's go. I'm more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Take that for a meme. All right? And then we can go on. And next thing we know, all of a sudden, here we are. Here's the enemy. And we're looking back. And where's our companionship? Where's our men? Where's the Lord? Lord said, no, I didn't command you to do that. That's great initiative, but that's not my will. We're trying to do what God wants us to do. But many times we're trying to get God to do what we want him to do. Is it making sense? It's probably, this starts to happen to Gideon. And, and this begins a downward spiral. But then as we go on to verse 22 and 28, we see that there is some peace in the land. Forty years. Gideon does a great job, but his job is mixed with sin. Let's do read that. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. Are you there? Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hands of the Midianite. Gideon said to him, or Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. By the way, great. This is good Gideon. Okay? He rejects the request for them and his sons to reign as kings, acknowledging that only the Lord has the right to rule over them. That's, that's what he says. Only the Lord has the right to rule over you. I will not be your king. However, Gideon continues, 
And though he says, I will not rule over you, he begins to take the advantages or the, what's the word I'm looking for when you get something? The privileges of being a king. Verse 24. And the Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. The earrings, the, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, they wore gold earrings in their ear. And they answered in verse 25, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man walked by, threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of the Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So they take the spoils, they throw it. Does that sound anything like Aaron in the wilderness? Look what he does. And Gideon made an epod of it and he put it in his city in Oprah. And all of Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had 40 arrests, 40 years in the days of Gideon. So there's some good, I won't be king. But then he takes the privileges of the king by collecting gold and commissioning an epod to be made. And he erected it in the city square building, uh, square, the city square, leading people to worship it. John MacArthur notes that in making the ephod was certainly a sad end to Gideon's influence as he perhaps in an expression of pride and maybe in wanting something in return sought to lift himself up in the eyes of the people. He intended nothing more than to make a breastpiece as David did to indicate civil not priestly rule. It was never intended to set up idolatrous worship but to be a symbol of civil power. That no evil was intended can be noted from the subduing of the Midians, the quietness from the wars, and the fact that idolatry came after Gideon's death, as well as the commendation of Gideon. So he says that, that Gideon's intention was not to do this, but yet his actions still led to this idolatry. The ESV study Bible notes that an original epod was an ordinate ceremonial garment worn by the high priest. Only he was to wear it. It was made of choice materials. And according to the law, there was only to be one epod in Israel. And it was to be the breastplate of justice. The epod was used to inquire by God. And by setting up another one outside of where it was supposed to be in Shiloh, we don't know that yet, but that's where it's going to be. By setting up one in his own city, city Gideon may have been making it of his own use to inquire of the Lord for others to come to him. Ultimately, it became a snare to Gideon and his family as it came a sense of pride and others came and began to worship it. As we continue in verse 29 through 32, we see inconsistent godly morals, inconsistent godly leadership, and inconsistent covenant faithfulness. Gideon retires back to his own house and he's described as a man fathering 70 sons. Now you can imagine, it's a lot of kids. Now, fathering 70 sons is not necessarily a bad thing. However, what we read here is he had many wives. The reason why he could have 70 sons is because he, he went and married many, many women and also had a girlfriend on the side who also gave a child. 
So what we see here is that Gideon, great victory, but winds up near the end of his life, is both guilty of both idolatry and polygamy. The land enjoyed 40 years of peace, and he dies of a good old age, serving God in his generation, identified as a man of faith uh, in Hebrews. However, as we go on in verse 33, we see that his legacy is soon forgotten. The writer of Judges notes that Israel once again fell into sin as soon as Gideon died. In other words, their repentance was only surface level. It wasn't real. While Gideon was alive, he kept them in check, so to speak. As we move on in chapter 9, we'll see that one of Gideon's sons will actually lead Israel further into the wickedness as he becomes like a anti-judge. Instead of being a good judge, he winds up becoming evil. So what we see here is we put seven and eight together. We see that with victory coming from his obedience and dependence on Yahweh, we also see defeat comes from his disobedience and independence from Yahweh. Do you get that? Faith and dependence on God leads to victory, but disobedience and independence from Yahweh leads to, dis- or leads to death. It leads to sin. Like many of us, his life is a mixed bag of obedience and disobedience. That's you and I, right? Each and every day. There's times we're obedient, there's times we're disobedient, and we're just trying to wonder. That's why Romans 8, there is no condemnation. Who We are overcomers, that he loves us. It says that our disobedience as Christians will lead to consequences. It will lead to sin. However, we still are saved. But we still see that our life is a mixed bag of obedience and disobedience. Even the best of us struggle with sin and will suffer from the consequences of our disobedience and desire to be independent. Miles again says the Lord raises up Gideon to deliver Israel through human weakness in order that Israel might know it is Lord alone who saves and rules over his people. Gideon's response to Israel's attempt to make him king summarizes the message when he says, no, the Lord will rule over you. But also, let us accept the word of caution given by Pastor Tim Keller here on the monitor, where he says that you and I must not misuse God's given success as an opportunity to seek honor and glory for ourselves. You say, my, why does that happen? Well, you and I sometimes, many times, as we're being obedient, we're walking in faith, we're feeling good about ourselves, we're feeling confident, we're feeling courageous. But then that's really times when we step right off the cliff. And very quickly, we go from the mountain tops to the valleys. That's why David says, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He knew what that was. He walked up high, but he also walked on low. We see Elijah. Remember Elijah? He defeats Jezebel and her prophets, 700 prophets of Baal. Fire comes down, but then the next thing we know, we find he's in a cave saying, where are you, God? It'd be better off if I was dead. Maybe you've had the same type of thoughts because your Christian life is up and down, up and down. You're struggling in life. You're tired of struggling with lack of confidence and lack of courage and not much companionship. 
Gideon showed great faith in following God's command, but a lack of faith when he acted out of revenge and personal animosity. Lewis Allen writing in the preacher's catechism, you'll see this here on the monitor. And this is something you and I need to understand. For Christian life is full of suffering. He says, suffering exposes our values, our faith, and our hearts. If you want to truly know what your character is, have some suffering. Have some, is your courage really strong? Is your faith in God really strong? How much do you love him? How much do you love me? A couple may say the same thing. Suffering exposes the weaknesses. It shows us the stress that we have in our life. He says success tests us to see if we are proud or if we are humble, thankful, and trusting. So in the same way, suffering and success can both test us. That is what God is doing. It's when Gideon, David, and Solomon taste success that they collapse into a catastrophic sin. You and I need to recognize probably the moment that we recognize we're in sin was probably after a great success in battling that sin. And we let our guard down. And we find ourselves once again defeated. One pastor says that no one sets out to become an apostate. It's never a result of one abrupt, drastic turn away from the Lord. Instead, apostasy is most often the, po- the, the product of a pattern of sinful compromises that harden and gradually stir steer a professing believer away from the truth. That's what I want us to understand this morning. Is there is great victory. But that great victory, we must understand, comes only from the Lord's hand. So I think the greatest victory is that of ours over death and the penalty of sin and Satan. It is Jesus who destroyed the works of Satan, not ourselves. It is not my uh, uh, courage, my confidence, not my ability or intellect that brought me to Christ. It's Christ who loved a rebellious sinner. It's the only reason why you and I have victory in any life. My repentance comes from him. My faith comes from him. It's a gift. It's when you and I begin to take that success and begin to boast and think it's ours. It's you and I face suffering and defeat. So we must be on guard at all times, recognizing that God gives us the courage the confidence and the companionship to help us. Then we're going to drop down all the way to an Isaac item tweet, Adam tweet. We're going to miss the rest. Guys, you're going to miss about one third of my message. But I want you to catch this. You may want to take a picture of this. This is a gentleman I follow on Twitter. He tweeted out this word. It's so amazing how God does this. He tweeted out this word of encouragement. He says, brothers and sisters, if you finish the race of faith, but limp through the finish line... Some of you think that's how I feel. I just sometimes feel like a battle-worn soldier. He says that is more than okay. We are already victorious in Christ. That's what we sung about. So we ain't trying, okay, that's his. We ain't trying to win the race. We're just trying to finish it by God's grace. Finishing is winning. That's why Paul says I set my goal to finish the race. 
Only one winner will win. That, that's Christ. He's won the race. You and I just want to finish the race that is set before us. Let us with endurance run the race that's set before us. Keeping our eyes on the, uh, the author and finisher of our faith. We are overcomers when we finish the race. We are more than conquerors when we finish the race. So brothers and sisters, let us do so. Let us follow the example of Gideon when he followed the Lord. But let us not follow Gideon when he seeks his own success and seeks his own enjoyment. I'd like to end with this, Psalms chapter 37, verse 23. One of my favorite verses. Again, this is a song. I, I, we need to, maybe, Brandon, you can write a song on this one. The steps of a good man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Friends, let us walk in the hand of an almighty God who has ordered our steps that we may glorify him for our good as we serve him in our generation. Amen? Let us do so. Let us have the faith of Gideon, but let us also be warned that many times success can lead to disobedience just as much as suffering leads to disobedience. If every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask uh, Randy to come on up. And we just want to take a moment to pause in this familiar story. We're always, you know, really enthralled and enraptured with the 300 men, right? That's a great story. We try to decipher, well, why is he allowing these men and not these men? What's, what's, what's the point? What's the spiritual point about kneeling or lapping? And, you know, we, we get caught up in the wrong things. What he's telling us is to be faithful. Find courage in the word of God. Find companionship. Find confidence in the things of God. And God will bless our endeavors as we're doing what God has instructed us to do. Let's do so. Let's consider those words. Let's pray. Maybe ask God, there may be a way in which you're lacking conviction, you're lacking courage. Maybe you're struggling with confidence. Maybe you don't have companionship, a godly companionship, and you're struggling. You feel God is calling you to do something, you're just not sure. You understand it, but yet you're, it's hard to follow through. Your battle with sin seems like it's, a, it's like locust, like the sea of the sand, you know, or the sand of the, of the beach. It's just too much. But you know that the battle is the Lord's. Would you trust him and respond to how he may be calling you this morning to obey him in all faith, despite the circumstances and consequences? Randy, would you come and close us with the Lord? Pastor Spur. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.